0: AMENDING THE CONSTITUTION The procedure for amending the Constitution is outlined in Article 5. The process is overseen by the Archivist of the United States. Between 1949 and 1985 it was overseen by the Administrator of General Services, and before that by the Secretary of State. Under Article 5, a proposal for an amendment must be adopted either by Congress or by a National Convention, but as of 2020 all amendments have gone through Congress. The proposal must receive two-thirds of the votes of both houses to proceed. It is passed as a joint resolution, but is not presented to the President, who plays no part in the process. Instead, it is passed to the Office of the Federal Register, which copies it in slip law format and submits it to the states. Congress decides whether the proposal is to be ratified in the state legislature or by a state ratifying convention. To date all amendments have been ratified by the state legislatures except one, the 21st Amendment. A proposed amendment becomes an operative part of the Constitution as soon as it is ratified by three-fourths of the states, currently 38 of the 50 states. There is no further step. The text requires no additional action by Congress or anyone else after ratification by the required number of states. Thus, when the Office of the Federal Register verifies that it has received the required number of authenticated ratification documents, it drafts a formal proclamation for the archivist to certify that the amendment is valid and has become part of the nation's frame of government. This certification is published in the Federal Register and United States statutes at large and serves as official notice to Congress and to the nation that the ratification process has been successfully completed. Ratified Amendments The Constitution has 27 amendments. Structurally, the Constitution's original text and all prior amendments remain untouched. The precedent for this practice was set in 1789, when Congress considered and proposed the first several constitutional amendments. Among these, Amendments 1 through 10 are collectively known as the Bill of Rights, and Amendments 13 through 15 are known as the Reconstruction Amendments. Excluding the 27th Amendment, which was pending before the states for 202 years. 225 days. The longest pending amendment that was successfully ratified was the 22nd Amendment, which took three years, 343 days. The 26th Amendment was ratified in the shortest time, 100 days. The average ratification time for the first 26 amendments was one year, 252 days, for all 27, 9 years, 48 days. Safeguards of Liberty Amendments 1, 2, and 3. The First Amendment. 1791, prohibits Congress from obstructing the exercise of certain individual freedoms freedom of religion, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, and right to petition. Its Free Exercise Clause guarantees a person's right to hold whatever religious beliefs he or she wants, and to freely exercise that belief, and its Establishment Clause prevents the federal government from creating an official national church or favoring one set of religious beliefs over another. The amendment guarantees an individual's right to express and to be exposed to a wide range of opinions and views. It was intended to ensure a free exchange of ideas, even unpopular ones. It also guarantees an individual's right to physically gather or associate with others in groups for economic, political or religious purposes. Additionally, it guarantees an individual's right to petition the government for a redress of grievances. The Second Amendment, 1791 protects the right of individuals to keep and bear arms. Although the Supreme Court has ruled that this right applies to individuals, not merely to collective militias, it has also held that the government may regulate or place some limits on the manufacture, ownership and sale of firearms or other weapons. Requested by several states during the constitutional ratification debates, the amendment reflected the lingering resentment over the widespread efforts of the British to confiscate the colonists' firearms at the outbreak of the Revolutionary War. Patrick Henry had rhetorically asked, Shall we be stronger, when we are totally disarmed, and when a British guard shall be stationed in every house? The Third Amendment, 1791, prohibits the federal government from forcing individuals to provide lodging to soldiers in their homes during peacetime without their consent. Requested by several states during the constitutional ratification debates, the amendment reflected the lingering resentment over the quartering acts passed by the British Parliament during the Revolutionary War which had allowed British soldiers to take over private homes for their own use. Safeguards of Justice, Amendments 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. The Fourth Amendment, 1791, protects people against unreasonable searches and seizures of either self or property by government officials. A search can mean everything from a frisking by a police officer or to a demand for a blood test to a search of an individual's home or car. A seizure occurs when the government takes control of an individual or something in his or her possession. Items that are seized often are used as evidence when the individual is charged with a crime. It also imposes certain limitations on police investigating a crime and prevents the use of illegally obtained evidence at trial. The Fifth Amendment, 1791, establishes the requirement that a trial for a major crime may commence only after an indictment has been handed down by a grand jury, protects individuals from double jeopardy, being tried and put in danger of being punished more than once for the same criminal act prohibits punishment without due process of law, thus protecting individuals from being imprisoned without fair procedures, and provides that an accused person may not be compelled to reveal to the police, prosecutor, judge, or jury any information that might incriminate or be used against him or her in a court of law. Additionally, the Fifth Amendment also prohibits the government from taking private property for public use without just compensation, the basis of eminent domain in the United States. The Sixth Amendment 1791, provides several protections and rights to an individual accused of a crime. The accused has the right to a fair and speedy trial by a local and impartial jury. Likewise, a person has the right to a public trial. This right protects defendants from secret proceedings that might encourage abuse of the justice system and serves to keep the public informed. This amendment also guarantees a right to legal counsel if accused of a crime guarantees that the accused may require witnesses to attend the trial and testify in the presence of the accused, and guarantees the accused a right to know the charges against them. In 1966, the Supreme Court ruled that, with the Fifth Amendment, this amendment requires what has become known as the Miranda Warning. The Seventh Amendment, 1791, extends the right to a jury trial to federal civil cases and inhibits courts from overturning a jury's findings of fact. Although the Seventh Amendment itself says that it is limited to suits of common law, meaning cases that trigger the right to a jury under English law, the amendment has been found to apply in lawsuits that are similar to the old common law cases. For example, the right to a jury trial applies to cases brought under federal statutes that prohibit race or gender discrimination in housing or employment. Importantly, this amendment guarantees the right to a jury trial only in federal court, not in state court. The Eighth Amendment 1791, protects people from having bail or fines set at an amount so high that it would be impossible for all but the richest defendants to pay and also protects people from being subjected to cruel and unusual punishment. Although this phrase originally was intended to outlaw certain gruesome methods of punishment, it has been broadened over the years to protect against punishments that are grossly disproportionate to or too harsh for the particular crime. This provision has also been used to challenge prison conditions such as extremely unsanitary cells overcrowding, insufficient medical care and deliberate failure by officials to protect inmates from one another. An Enumerated Rights and Reserved Powers, Amendments 9 and 10 The Ninth Amendment, 1791, declares that individuals have other fundamental rights, in addition to those stated in the Constitution. During the constitutional ratification debates anti-federalists argued that a Bill of Rights should be added. The Federalists opposed it on grounds that a list would necessarily be incomplete but would be taken as explicit and exhaustive, thus enlarging the power of the federal government by implication. The Anti-Federalists persisted, and several state ratification conventions refused to ratify the Constitution without a more specific list of protections, so the First Congress added what became the Ninth Amendment as a compromise. Because the rights protected by the Ninth Amendment are not specified, they are referred to as an enumerated. The Supreme Court has found that an enumerated rights include such important rights as the right to travel, the right to vote, the right to privacy, and the right to make important decisions about one's health care or body. The Tenth Amendment, 1791, was included in the Bill of Rights to further define the balance of power between the federal government and the states. The amendment states that the federal government has only those powers specifically granted by the Constitution. These powers include the power to declare war, to collect taxes, regulate interstate business activities and others that are listed in the articles or in subsequent constitutional amendments. Any power not listed is, says the Tenth Amendment, left to the states or the people. While there is no specific list of what these reserved powers may be, the Supreme Court has ruled that laws affecting family relations, commerce within the state's own borders, and local law enforcement activities, are among those specifically reserved to the states or the people. Governmental Authority, Amendments 11 16, 18, and 21. The Eleventh Amendment, 1795, specifically prohibits federal courts from hearing cases in which a state is sued by an individual from another state or another country, thus extending to the state's sovereign immunity protection from certain types of legal liability. Article 3, Section 2, Clause 1 has been affected by this amendment, which also overturned the Supreme Court's decision in Chisholm v. Georgia. The Sixteenth Amendment 1913, removed existing constitutional constraints that limited the power of Congress to lay and collect taxes on income. Specifically, the apportionment constraints delineated in Article 1, Section 9, Clause 4 have been removed by this amendment, which also overturned an 1895 Supreme Court decision, in Pollock v. Farmers Loan and Trust Company, that declared an unapportioned federal income tax on rents, dividends, and interest unconstitutional. This amendment has become the basis for all subsequent federal income tax legislation and has greatly expanded the scope of federal taxing and spending in the years since. The 18th Amendment, 1919, prohibited the making, transporting, and selling of alcoholic beverages nationwide. It also authorized Congress to enact legislation enforcing this prohibition. Adopted at the urging of the National Temperance Movement, proponents believed that the use of alcohol was reckless and destructive and that Prohibition would reduce crime and corruption, solve social problems, decrease the need for welfare in prisons, and improve the health of all Americans. During Prohibition, it is estimated that alcohol consumption and alcohol-related deaths declined dramatically. But Prohibition had other, more negative consequences. The amendment drove the lucrative alcohol business underground giving rise to a large and pervasive black market. In addition, prohibition encouraged disrespect for the law and strengthened organized crime. Prohibition came to an end in 1933, when this amendment was repealed. The 21st Amendment, 1933, repealed the 18th Amendment and returned the regulation of alcohol to the states. Each state sets its own rules for the sale and importation of alcohol, including the drinking age. Because a federal law provides federal funds to states that prohibit the sale of alcohol to minors under the age of 21, all 50 states have set their drinking age there. Rules about how alcohol is sold vary greatly from state to state. Safeguards of Civil Rights Amendments 13, 14, 15, 19, 23, 24, and 26 The Thirteenth Amendment, 1865, Abolished Slavery and Involuntary Servitude Except as punishment for a crime, and authorized Congress to enforce abolition. Though millions of slaves had been declared free by the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation, their post-Civil War status was unclear, as was the status of other millions. Congress intended the Thirteenth Amendment to be a proclamation of freedom for all slaves throughout the nation and to take the question of emancipation away from politics. This amendment rendered inoperative or moot several of the original parts of the Constitution. The Fourteenth Amendment 1868, granted United States citizenship to former slaves and to all persons subject to U.S. jurisdiction. It also contained three new limits on state power, a state shall not violate a citizen's privileges or immunities, shall not deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, and must guarantee all persons equal protection of the laws. These limitations dramatically expanded the protections of the Constitution. This amendment, according to the Supreme Court's doctrine of incorporation, makes most provisions of the Bill of Rights applicable to state and local governments as well. It superseded the mode of apportionment of representatives delineated in Article 1, Section 2, Clause 3, and also overturned the Supreme Court's decision in Dred Scott v. Sandford. The Fifteenth Amendment, 1870, prohibits the use of race, color, or previous condition of servitude in determining which citizens may vote. The last of three post-Civil War Reconstruction Amendments, it sought to abolish one of the key vestiges of slavery and to advance the civil rights and liberties of former slaves. The 19th Amendment, 1920, prohibits the government from denying women the right to vote on the same terms as men. Prior to the Amendment's adoption, only a few states permitted women to vote and to hold office. The 23rd Amendment, 1961, extends the right to vote in presidential elections to citizens residing in the District of Columbia by granting the district electors in the Electoral College, as if it were a state. When first established as the nation's capital in 1800, the District of Columbia's 5,000 residents had neither a local government, nor the right to vote in federal elections. By 1960 the population of the district had grown to over 760,000. The 24th Amendment, 1964, prohibits a poll tax for voting. Although passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments helped remove many of the discriminatory laws left over from slavery, they did not eliminate all forms of discrimination. Along with literacy tests and durational residency requirements, poll taxes were used to keep low income, primarily African American, citizens from participating in elections. The Supreme Court has since struck down these discriminatory measures, opening democratic participation to all. The 26th Amendment, 1971, prohibits the government from denying the right of United States citizens, 18 years of age or older, to vote on account of age. The drive to lower the voting age was driven in large part by the broader student activism movement protesting the Vietnam War. It gained strength following the Supreme Court's decision in Oregon v. Mitchell. Government Processes and Procedures Amendments 12, 17, 20, 22, 25, and 27. The Twelfth Amendment, 1804, modifies the way the Electoral College chooses the president and vice president. It stipulates that each elector must cast a distinct vote for president and vice president, instead of two votes for president. It also suggests that the president and vice president should not be from the same state. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 is superseded by this amendment, which also extends the eligibility requirements to become president to the vice president. The 17th Amendment, 1913, modifies the way senators are elected. It stipulates that senators are to be elected by direct popular vote. The amendment supersedes Article 1, Section 2, Clauses 1 and 2, under which the two senators from each state were elected by the state legislature. It also allows state legislatures to permit their governors to make temporary appointments until a special election can be held. The 20th Amendment, 1933 changes the date on which a new president, vice president and Congress take office, thus shortening the time between election day and the beginning of presidential, vice presidential and congressional terms. Originally, the Constitution provided that the annual meeting was to be on the first Monday in December unless otherwise provided by law. This meant that, when a new Congress was elected in November, it did not come into office until the following March, with a lame duck Congress convening in the interim. By moving the beginning of the president's new term from March 4 to January 20, and in the case of Congress, to January 3, proponents hope to put an end to lame-duck sessions, while allowing for a speedier transition for the new administration and legislators. The 22nd Amendment, 1951, limits an elected president to two terms in office, a total of eight years. However, under some circumstances it is possible for an individual to serve more than eight years. Although nothing in the original frame of government limited how many presidential terms one could serve, the nation's first president, George Washington, declined to run for a third term, suggesting that two terms of four years were enough for any president. This precedent remained an unwritten rule of the presidency until broken by Franklin D. Roosevelt, who was elected to a third term as president in 1940 and in 1944 to a fourth. The 25th Amendment, 1967 clarifies what happens upon the death, removal, or resignation of the president or vice president and how the presidency is temporarily filled if the president becomes disabled and cannot fulfill the responsibilities of the office. It supersedes the ambiguous succession rule established in Article 2, Section 1, Clause 6. A concrete plan of succession has been needed on multiple occasions since 1789. However, for nearly 20% of U.S. history, there has been no vice president in office who can assume the presidency. The 27th Amendment, 1992, prevents members of Congress from granting themselves pay raises during the current session. Rather, any raises that are adopted must take effect during the next session of Congress. Its proponents believe that federal legislators would be more likely to be cautious about increasing congressional pay if they have no personal stake in the vote. Article 1, Section 6 Clause 1 has been affected by this amendment, which remained pending for over two centuries as it contained no time limit for ratification. The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation Incorporated under a Creative Commons Attribution, Share Alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The content of this podcast was last edited on March 29, 2020. Hi, this is Annie from Au Simone. You're listening to a Creative Commons licensed podcast.